0: Lord, we love your word, and we know what an entrustment it is that we have it, and we are reminded that the preaching of your word is deeply important, not because of our eloquence, but because it's your word, and so we trust that your word has power. It's living and active. It's able to save, and so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use it towards that end pray that as we look to the gospel of John, Jesus, you'd help us see you clearly today. We thank you for all the things that you declared to us in this book that you are. We wanna look at those today. We pray that the result would be that for those of us who are in you, that our hearts would find affection. Maybe maybe the embers of affection for you just fanned into a, a raging fire. And for those who are not in you, who at this point have not placed their faith in you, that you would show them your graciousness, show them your goodness. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause them to see the greatness of King Jesus. We'd love for them to worship him as we worship him, to come and join us. We love you. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, church, if you have your Bible, open with me to the Gospel of John. That's in the New Testament. And we're gonna gonna look at that today. We're beginning a new series today in the Gospel of John. You know, how many of you love a really good conversation? Do you love a good conversation? Yeah, I love a good conversation. But I have to say it's an acquired taste because how many of you remember being a kid and your parents loving a good conversation and you just thinking, I just wanna go home? Like at church afterwards, some of the kids are gonna give me an amen on this. I just want to go home. My parents won't stop talking. Or like, I remember going to our friends, the Garst's house on Sunday nights for burgers. And we would, and I did not understand why the adults were so content to sit at the table and talk for three hours. And I was like, why are you not shooting baskets with us? Why are you not hitting wiffle balls with us? You are boring people. I do not understand this way of life that you've chosen, Right? And you grow up and you get a little older and you start to realize that there's nothing better than a really good conversation, right, over time. I mean, the kind of conversation that engages you with someone that's thoughtful and wise and a good listener and really, you know, engages you well. And it's about meaningful substance, you know, it's not a conversation about fluff. Those kinds of conversations are so valuable. When as we begin the Gospel of John, essentially what John is doing in this whole book is he's inviting you and I into a conversation about who Jesus is. Think come and have a conversation with me. Now, a conversation with a historical author in the scriptures is a little different than a conversation over the dinner table with a contemporary, with someone that you can go back and forth with in the moment. But nonetheless, we're gonna go back and forth in John, and what we're gonna see is that John has shaped his gospel, his retelling of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. He's shaped it in such a way that he's just really saying to us, come and enter a conversation with me about who Jesus is, because you may not have seen him for all that he is just yet. And I want you to see it. Oh, I want you to see it. Here's how John states the purpose of his entire book as he's inviting us into this conversation, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, really towards the end of the book, he's gonna give us his thematic statement of the entire gospel. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, in other words, all the ones he's recorded in the first 20 chapters, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, You may have life in his name. Now, that's John telling us. Our purpose for the next nine months as we look at this gospel, we're going to be uh, week by week moving through the book of John. We're going to see some fascinating stories. We're going to see some very interesting things that Jesus says and some very interesting things that he does. And we're going to kind of bring the series to a conclusion around Easter. The week after Easter will be our last week in the gospel of John. So it'll take us about nine months to move through it with a little break for Advent in Christmas, around Christmas time where we'll talk about a few other things there. But as we do that, essentially what I want you to see now is that if you are not of faith, Jesus is inviting you to consider as you enter this conversation with John who's writing about him, Jesus is inviting you to consider him to perhaps see him afresh for the first time. And let me just say, to put down perhaps some of the objections that you've had to faith in him. He wants to break right through all those. Perhaps you've been mistreated by the church, but he wants to show you that he is, while he loves his church, he is not the same as his church. And he is shaping and redeeming his church. And so perhaps you've been wounded by the church in the past, but he's gonna say, oh no, no, no. Come and see me. Just come and see me. Let me show you me, right? and. Lest you think, oh, okay, well, this is for people who are not yet convinced that Jesus is King, that he's the Son of God, that he's the Christ. If you're in Christ, you know, how often do our lives not align with what we say we believe? And Jesus is going to invite you to see him again. And he's going to say, see who I am and see how your life needs to be transformed by that. See how your life needs to change, follower of mine, because I am all of these things that I'm going to reveal to you in this gospel. So as we look at it now and look to align our lives, with it, perhaps we'll find that our journey might be something kind of like John's journey, John the author of this gospel. In Mark chapter three, uh, John and his brother James are called Sons of Thunder, which is an awesome nickname, by the way. But it's probably alluding to the idea that John might be a little bit rash, he might be a little bit in love with power. He might be the kind of guy that's like that's like a lightning strike. He just roars down like thunder. That That marked John and his brother James. In fact, in Luke chapter nine, early in his following of Jesus, do you remember this story if you've read the Gospels before? One of the most fascinating stories is that there are these Samaritans uh, who reject, and the Jews and the Samaritans, they don't like each other, and the Samaritans have rejected Jesus. They've said, no, you can't come through here as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to go to the cross. And John says, because they rejected you, Jesus, should we just call down fire from heaven to consume them?" And Jesus is like, you don't understand my ways. As foolish as they are to reject me, you're as foolish as they are to say that is essentially Jesus' response. That's not, that's not what I'm about. It's not what I've come to do. Now that's John, right? John is calling down fire from heaven. John is a son of thunder. And the same John who did those things is the John who's in his writings is most known for one thing. Do you know what that one thing is? Love. John cannot get enough of talking about love in everything he's written in the scriptures. The gospel of John is marked by this idea of love, love, love. John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, are consumed with the idea of what does it mean to love? And what does it mean to be loved? I mean, listen to a couple of these things that John wrote. John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible, perhaps. For God so what? Love the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or how about 1 John 3:18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Or how about 1 John chapter 4 verse 8? Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, that's not saying love is God. I don't have time to get into that. Okay? That's different, but love is completely defined and consumed by the person. Who God is defines what love is, is what John is saying there. Now imagine, the same guy who says, should we caught on fire from heaven? Is only a few years later writing, if you don't love, you don't know God. Because God is love. Can you see the transformation that's taken place in this man? He has been utterly changed by an encounter with Jesus. Utterly changed. And it took some time, right? It took some time. John didn't not, he wasn't overnight the first day he met Jesus. He didn't all of a sudden go, I get it. I get what it is to know who God is and to be consumed by the idea of loving God and loving others and to know that I am loved by God and his child. So, seeing who Jesus is changed him and it will change us And he invites us into a conversation now. And that conversation is framed really uniquely and in a beautiful way. As we move through the gospel, what you're going to find is that John is going to record seven things that Jesus says about himself. And we call those seven I am statements. Jesus says, I am this, I am that. He's going to give us seven of those throughout the gospel of John. And they're going to illuminate for us Jesus' own words about who he said he was and his very nature and his very character. And along with those seven I am statements, the Gospel of John also gives us seven miraculous works that Jesus did. And they're they're not identically paired up, but they often go very near one another. And so we're gonna see amazing things that Jesus does. Now, the idea of seven, and the reason John probably gives us seven I am statements and seven miracles. He said in John chapter 20, Jesus did many more miracles than this, right? But seven in the ancient world was a number of completion. It was a number of perfection. And so even through the number of miracles that John is showing us in the Gospel of John, he could have told us many, many more, but he told us seven specific ones. And the reason he gave us those seven is not because they were greater than the other ones. It's because he wants us to recognize Jesus is perfect. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment. I'm going to give you seven miracles to show you the complete perfection of Jesus' work in this world so that you would see who he is. You guys follow that? So that's the reason for the numbers. So now, let's look today, because what I want to do is I want to see if I can't give you an overview of the book by going through these seven I am statements. We're going to encounter them all again throughout our study of this book over the next nine months in their context. But what I'd like to do is just see if we can't get a little overwhelmed by the greatness of Jesus in these seven I am statements. I want them to have a cumulative effect on you today. So I'm not gonna dig deep into each one. I'm gonna give you a brief statement about each one in hopes that you might sort of, that we begin to whet our appetite for the conversation that's beginning today. To say, oh, I can't wait to see how Jesus will reveal himself in this gospel as it unfolds over the next weeks. You with me? All right, awesome, fantastic. So let's look at the first I Am statement. If you've got your Bible, John chapter six, verse 35. John chapter six, verse 35, and we will put it on the screen as well. And that reminds me, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love to just give you one. We have them at the welcome desk out there. It would be our gift to you. We'd love if you to have God's word in your hand every day of the week, and particularly on Sunday as you come to worship with us. So John chapter six, verse 35. Jesus says this, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Now the people are asking Jesus in this context of this I am statement, asking him to do a sign. They're saying, you know, Moses provided manna in the wilderness for our ancestors and you need to give a sign that you're like him, that you're from God as we know Moses was from God and so we want you to give a sign. And they're essentially saying provide bread. Now ironically, Jesus right before this has just multiplied a couple of loaves of bread into enough food to feed thousands of people. And they're saying, give us a sign. And if you're Jesus in this moment, wouldn't you think, what are you talking about? I just fed you, right? So there's, he says then in response to their invite for him to give a sign, Jesus is saying, I, I am the sign. He said, Moses didn't give the manna to you. It was God that gave it to you. And I am now the bread that comes down from heaven. That manna, that manna pointed to me. I'm the bread that comes down out of heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I am able to satisfy, to bring to an end, your spiritual hunger. I can bring to an end your spiritual hunger. That's a big claim, right? Jesus is saying that that hunger you feel in your soul for something greater, grander, bigger, for something you recognize you need, for that you need to be loved and to have an identity, I'm the one who can end that hunger. I can stop it. You don't have to be hungry anymore if you will come to me. I am the bread of life. So here's what it means to be a Christian. It means to find that Jesus is better bread than anything the world offers. You know, if you know our, uh, our brother, John Nesbitt, who goes here, some of you know John, worked with us on staff for a while, recently retired, John loves chocolate like no person I've ever seen in my entire life. We would have staff lunches and John would go get the dessert before he would eat his lunch because he just wanted to make sure that he didn't miss out on chocolate. This guy loves some chocolate. Well, I was in a meeting recently with, with uh, John, my dear friend, and I brought the bagels for this breakfast meeting and was all excited because I, I got chocolate chip bagels. And I said to myself, you know what, John is gonna be so happy about this because I've combined breakfast with chocolate and it's brilliant. And so I... I John walked into the meeting, first one there. I said, John, I got you chocolate chip bagels. And he's like, you are awesome. And he went to get the chocolate chip bagels and he opened it up and do you know what was in there? A cinnamon crunch bagel. You were raisins, no. (laughs) Give me some credit. You're smarter than that. (laughs) Didn't anticipate that. No, no, no. The Panera Bread Cinnamon Crunch Bagel was in there. And do you know what John said? I reject chocolate chip bagels on behalf of the greatest bread known to man, the cinnamon crunch bagel from Panera. He said, Trent, once you've had it, you can't go back. And I said, I, I agree with you. It's fantastic, right? John loves chocolate, but not, not when, once you've tasted the cinnamon crunch bagel, there's no more having chocolate chip bagels anymore. Not when cinnamon crunch is an option. And I know it's a silly example. It's the best I could come up with this week, okay? <laughs> it involved bread. That's why it came to mind. But you get the idea, right? Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the better bread. Like you don't, You're not gonna want that anymore once you come to me. Now, here's the interesting thing. Barner recently did a study. And the study produced uh, the result that about 71% of folks say, who are not believers, say I really don't, I don't have any spiritual hunger. Like, I'm not interested, I don't, I'm not on a spiritual journey. I don't feel a need for something more in my life. And I have really spent a lot of time assuming people feel a hunger, they feel a need. And the interesting thing about Jesus is he's not like a Costco like, uh, sample tray. You can't just come and get a sample of him and decide and go, okay, oh yeah, he really does, he is good, I'll buy the package. You have to sit down at the meal of Jesus. You have to take him all and say, I will take everything he is, and only then do you find that he actually is bread that satisfies. A little sample of Jesus won't do it. And so I recognize if you're not a believer, that's, that's challenging because you're saying, well, I kind of would like to dip my toe in the water and find out if he's gonna satisfy before I jump all the way in. But my friend, you, it, you won't find him to satisfy in that way. He only satisfies when you, when you take the full meal and when you eat. Now let me offer a possible idea for why, and I could be wrong about this, okay, so don't take this as gospel, but I wonder why 71% of people would say, I'm not on some spiritual quest. I, I don't feel a need and hunger. Because either what Jesus is saying here about being bread that we need is not true, or it's possible that he is bread and we're saying we're not hungry because we filled up on a bunch of junk food. And that could be true for a believer and an unbeliever, by the way. But I've noticed when I travel to other places where they're not so entertained all the time, when I travel to other parts of the world, that hunger's still present in believers and unbelievers. And they're looking to have it satisfied somewhere in some way They might choose another religion, they might choose another path of life, but they're trying to satisfy a spiritual hunger and they would not deny it. It seems only here in the West where we are consumed with entertainment constantly do we have some sense that we're just not hungry. I wonder if you might not feel hungry because you're filling up on things that you think satisfy but really are empty calories. And Jesus is saying, I'm bread, true bread. Come and have me. So let me give you, a, I mean, let's, let's do something. Let's try something. If you're not feeling any spiritual hunger, do this for me. For 21 days, there's 21 chapters of John, read a chapter of John a day for the next 21 days and do not engage in social media in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> it's not that hard. I'm not on any of it. You can survive. Right, read a newspaper to get your news. It'll be all right. Try it. Get off Twitter, Instagram. I'm sure I'm so behind on whatever the most common up-to-date thing is. Whatever it is, I, I don't know to even name it. Get off of it. Try it for 21 days. See if your hunger increases. See what happens. I'm willing to bet that it might. Now you can't get, it off, get off that and then like replace it with, I'm just gonna watch YouTube videos all day. Like don't, don't do that, okay? So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. The second thing Jesus says in John chapter eight, so if you flip over just probably one page in your Bible, in John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what's Jesus saying? He says, I'm the light of the world. What he's saying is, I'm able to give moral clarity. I'm able to show you what is right and what is wrong. You know, have you ever been in a situation where you're just going, I don't know what the right thing is to do? Well, what Jesus is saying is, hey, if you follow me, when I say I am the light of the world, right, in, in, John, there's this constant back and forth between light and dark. It's a metaphor that John loves to use. And darkness for John always means confusion and it means sin, it means those two things. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, what he's saying is I'm able to bring you out of sin and out of confusion and into clarity about what is right and good and true. And I'm actually able to make you right and good and true. I'm actually able to do that for you if you will come to me. Now listen, fully a third, that same survey I just referred to in the last point, fully a third of non-Christians say they would be more interested in Jesus if they thought of Christians in a positive light. So just think about that. What does that mean about, are we living in the moral clarity that Jesus has brought to us? Are we? I find so often a disconnect for us in the church between who we say we believe Jesus to be and how we choose to live. And look, I'm not saying it's easy. I, 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 have, I lost count of the number of young women that my wife discipled, high school students, who would be in a relationship and say, I know I shouldn't be in this relationship. It's pulling me away from Jesus. I know that it's not the right relationship to be in. And so Amanda would listen patiently and faithfully and just point them in the direction of, you know, Jesus's love is enough for you. Who he calls you as his daughter is enough for you. You don't, you don't need this guy. And she would graciously point them in that door. They would walk out the door going, I'm ending it. It's gonna be over. And I'm not dating anybody for a long time. And two weeks later, they'd be back at our house and they'd have a new boyfriend. Because it's, it's, it's hard sometimes to align our lives according to what we actually believe. Of course, it begs the question whether we actually believe it or not, right? So Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I am the light of the world. I can give you moral clarity, but now, church, walk in it. Walk in the right and the wrong that I have declared. And listen, for you who are not believers, if you're not a Christian, our current cultural trend is to think that we find truth by looking inside of ourselves. And I just wanna quickly offer a thought about that to you as we enter this conversation I wonder if you look inside yourself, and like I do when I look inside myself, and see competing desires, right? So like, I I want a flat stomach, but I also want the donuts, right? Like, there's competing desires within each of us, and I wonder if truth is supposed to be found by looking within, what am I supposed to do with those competing desires, particularly when they come to serious things, not just donuts, right? When they come to serious matters, if truth is found within, Man, I'm gonna be lost in confusion. I would imagine you might find yourself lost in confusion if you think seriously about making moral choices and trying to figure that out only by looking inside yourself to determine what's right and wrong. I would argue you need something outside yourself to help you see what is right and wrong, and that's what Jesus is saying he can do for you. He's saying I will bring an objective morality to you that will help shape you and define you, and you don't have to just trust your own gut instinct or impulses. Now, I recognize that comes with having to submit to an outside objective moral reality, and so you're gonna have to humble yourself as believers are supposed to be humbling themselves and say, I don't just get to do whatever I feel is right. I don't get to do that. And let me just tell you, there will be times, and followers of Jesus, I'm sure you would echo this, there will be times where you recognize the right thing to do is not the thing you want to do. And if you were left to just say, I'll look within for what's right and trust what I feel and what I sense, you would probably recognize you would have made some horrible choices. You would have moved off in a direction that clearly was not morally good. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, that's a big thing to say. Third thing he says, I am the door of the sheep. That's in John chapter 10, verse seven. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Now, this uh, idea has some nuances to it, but essentially what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you know, if the sheep are God's people and they're in the pen and I'm the door, he's saying that I'm the way you enter into God's people. I'm the way you become one of God's people. I'm the doorway into that. So what he's saying is I'm able to give you access to God's family, this is one of my favorite aspects, particularly for those of you who are not believers. When I share the gospel, one of my favorite things is to say, don't you know that when you, or I shouldn't say don't you know, that sounds really condescending, sorry. Uh, just rather to say, one of my favorite things is to say, you don't just get Jesus, you get a whole family. When you come to faith in him, you don't just, you don't just get him. He would be enough. I mean, if there was nothing else, he's enough. Believe you me. But you also get a family. Right, and if you're totally weird and awkward, we can't get rid of you, because he put you in the family. Right, you never get voted off the island. Cannot happen, like if you go to family reunions and you're the one that when you show up, everyone's like, oh no, they came, right? The church just goes, yeah, we're filled with a bunch of weirdos, right? Come on in, because Jesus gives us entrance, he's the door, and no one can shut that door. No one can shut that door. Jesus gives access to God's people. One of my favorite things that I heard this week was um, some of you know Kim Jones. She's a part of our church family and Kim's a sweetheart and she's had some health issues and she's been in rehab Uh, and there have been so many of you who have gone to visit her that uh, initially the people at the rehab facility said yeah, y'all can come during visiting hours. You can come during her PT sessions and you can actually help her and encourage her, be her cheerleader while she's going through PT. Uh, And This week, we got an email that said, could you please stop sending people during PT hours because there's too many of you showing up. There's a lady from Senegal who said to Kim, who are all these people? And she said, well, there's my church, my church family. She said, I'm coming to your church. So I'm going to come to your church because so many of you loved Kim so well that you just kept showing up. Now, don't stop showing up, but I guess we're not supposed to go during PT because Kim has to get some work done. And we're... We're bothering that work. We're not doing a good job. So we're gonna support her wisely, right? But I love that. I got that email this week and I just laughed. I was like, yeah, that's us. And it better keep being us, you know? So I love that. So the church, when Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep, he's saying, I'm access to God's family. And you are invited into that family. Now, just a few verses later, John chapter 10, verse 11. So he's gonna mix his metaphors a little bit because at first he says, I'm the door, but then he's gonna make his next I am statement. And he's gonna say, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And in this context, I don't have time to go all the way into it, but he's gonna say the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so the metaphor of the idea of a shepherd there is that Jesus is saying, when the wolf shows up, I'm not a hired hand. I don't run away. I stay and I fight for the sheep. So what Jesus is saying is I can protect you from Satan. That's what he's saying. I can protect you from the devil. Now, for those of you who are, perhaps your worldview is such that you don't think much about the idea of spiritual good or spiritual evil, that might sound like a lot of mumbo jumbo. I mean, I recognize that. That might sound like a weird idea that the devil would be a real entity, a real spiritual entity that really wants to to seek to kill you and to harm you and to destroy you. He wants to steal from you, wants to seek joy and truth. He just wants to rob from you constantly. I recognize that may sound a little bit odd, but let me at least give you this thought if you don't sense the reality of spiritual evil, could it be that kind of like being consumed with entertainment is the devil? Might the devil be happy to lull you into thinking he doesn't exist and to leave you alone, if only to destroy you at the end? Not unlike, uh, have you read the the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? If you haven't read it, great children's book. It's an allegory for the Christian faith, and in a lot of ways. And you know they've made some movies about it at this point. But the White Witch is absolutely happy to not harm Edmund, but to give him what? Turkish delight. Just to fill him with Turkish delight. All the Turkish delight he wants only to lure him to her castle to betray his brothers and sisters and then imprison him there for as long as she can do it. She's happy to not make a a frontal assault on him. She's happy to destroy him with Turkish delight. It's at least possible that the devil is is content to do that in your life as well if you're not a follower of Jesus. Now, here's the other thing. Those of you who are believers, every time you face trials, go back to the sacrifice of Jesus, because here's what he's saying when he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's saying, when Satan came for you, I laid down my life so that he couldn't take yours. And no matter how many trials Jesus allows to come into our life, no matter how many difficulties he allows there, the one thing we can know for certain will never take place is we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus because Jesus has laid down his life to guarantee that the devil can never take ours. At the end of all things, you will be the object of God's love, not subject to his wrath nor separated from him and subject to the whims of the evil one because he is a good shepherd. The next thing, the next I am statement that Jesus gives, the fifth one, says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now this is in John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life, and he follows that by saying, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now one of the the final miracle of the seven that's recorded in the Gospel of John is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And because uh, it's in conjunction with this, it makes a lot of sense that Jesus would say to Mary and Martha, it's not just that I can raise Lazarus. He's like, I am the resurrection. It's not just gonna come one day, it's here today, because I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I am able to raise you from the dead after you die and make it so that you will never die again. And that's an important point, right? Because Lazarus did what? He died again, y'all. That's not fun. Right, don't you think, did you, who got the worst end of that deal that day? Lazarus probably did. Jesus is like, I'm gonna show you my power I'm gonna raise Lazarus and Lazarus thing, I was with the Lord. Why would I want to come back from that? And I gotta die again. Right, That's a little aside, okay? But the point being, I don't know any of that. I don't know about Lazarus' feelings, okay? What I do know is that Jesus is demonstrating that he has power to raise us from the dead at the end of our life and to make it so that we will never die again. It's not just we'll be raised and then we'll go through this whole thing again and then die again. He says, no, I'll raise you and I'll make it so that you never die. That's what Jesus is claiming to be able to do when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, the great question, big picture question, I think every person, if they don't ask it, they should ask it, and I think most people do, is what happens after this life? And every world religion has an answer to that question. Every single one. And you know, you're not really a world religion unless you have an attempt to answer that question, right? So Buddhism attempts an answer at that. Hinduism attempts an answer at it. Everyone, Islam attempts an answer at it. Here's the distinction. The answer given in every other world religion is given by a, a religious leader who died and did not come back. In Christianity, we are given an answer to the question, what happens after life by one who went through death and came back on the other side? And the evidence is overwhelming that he absolutely rose from the dead. Now, who will you trust? Who do you want to listen to? Who is, you know, which news channel do you want to tune into for the answer to this question? I would say you want to listen to Jesus because he's the only one who doesn't just say I can do this and say this is what will happen after, the, after this life is over. He's the one who has been through this life, through death, and come back on the other side and remains alive today. Do you know that's important Christian doctrine, right? That Jesus is alive, bodily raised from the dead at the right hand of the Father. It's why we put so much stock in his claim to be able to resurrect us, because he was resurrected in the power of God, and he didn't die again. And if he lives eternally and forever, then he has the ability to impart that to others, and no one else can do that. So friend, who if you're not a believer, that's a question Jesus is saying, ponder that. Think on that. Give it serious, weighty consideration. There is no more important question in this life than what will happen after it. The sixth I am statement. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. In John chapter 14, verse six. Some of these are probably sounding familiar, Yes he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now here's what Jesus is saying there, similar to being the resurrection and the life, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Uh, Similar idea that he can raise us from the dead. But he's going a little bit further because in the context of Jesus saying that, they're asking, he's saying, I am going, I'm leaving now, I'm going to prepare a place for you and you know the way to get there. And Thomas responds, we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And then Jesus responds, I am the way. If you believe in me, I'm the way, the way to what? The way to your home with God. So what Jesus is saying here is I'm able to give you a home and to make a way for you to get to that home. So it's not just saying I can give you eternal life as in I'm the resurrection and the life. It's a little bit more nuanced than that when he's actually saying I am the way to your forever home. I'm the one that can give you access to that place. In fact, I'm preparing it for you. Home is such a great concept, isn't it? How many of you think about your home? I hope when you think about your home, you think about a place of warmth and love and a place that you love to be. I always think about driving home from college. My parents have only ever lived in one house. So they still live in the same house. It's been like 40 plus years. So it's interesting to me, the idea of them moving is so foreign that I can't imagine going home and having it be some other place because that place has always been home. And there's a warmth of affection in my heart for that place, right? I can, I can smell as we turn on to Chestnut in Carrollton, Texas and we're making our way to 3124, right? I can smell the chocolate chip cookies baking, like when I was in college and I was coming home for the weekend, right, with my bag full of laundry and my mom going, my boy's coming home. I'm making some chocolate chip cookies so that they're you know, ready for him when he gets here. Home is a special thing. And Jesus said, I, I'm preparing a home for you. Do you know that he's doing that now? Follower of Jesus, he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And we know the way there. He is the way. He's calling you home, inviting you home. The seventh I am statement that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John is found in John chapter 15, verse one. And it's this. It says, I am the true vine. Now in this metaphor, what Jesus is saying is, I'm the vine, you're the branches. In other words, you stay connected to me and you will bear fruit. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I can give you a meaningful life. I can give you a life that, that actually bears good things from it. Now, you don't have to look to your own strength to be able to do that. And I would argue most of us, if not all of us, would say we want to live a good life. We want to want to live a life of meaning and purpose. We want there to be substance to our lives. We don't want to get to the end and have people show up for our funeral and say, I don't know, they kind of wasted all their time. I don't, I don't really know what to say about this person. Anybody looking for that to be the final testimony of your life? probably not you're probably looking to have people say man they loved well they were faithful they worked hard they you know any number of things and what Jesus is saying if you'll stay connected to me if you'll abide in me I'm 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 the vine that gives nutrients that gives life and if you'll stay connected into me I'm able to cause you to bear fruit in any circumstances, no matter what circumstances you're in. Jesus is saying, I'm able to cause you to to produce such fruit that people will say, what a life of purpose, what a life of meaning, what a life of substance. That's the final thing Jesus is claiming he's able to do. But listen now, this is so important because there's nothing in this life that cannot be taken from you. Your job can be taken from you. Your money can be taken from you. Your health can be taken from you. Your family can be taken from you. The things we hold most dear, none of them is guaranteed. Not a single one. But do you know what is guaranteed? No matter what our circumstances, we cannot lose him. We cannot lose him. And if we abide in him, the true vine, we will bear fruit we will live a life of meaning and purpose. And it may come through some of those things. It may reveal itself through our families. It may reveal itself through our work, absolutely. But none of those things in and of themselves can give us a meaningful life, none of them. What gives us a meaningful life is abiding in the vine that Jesus is. Now we've gone through all seven of those. And what I really want, I mean, I just hit them so briefly, and obviously we could spend a lot more time on any of them, but I want you to see so much, the cumulative impact of that. Here's the deal. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, I think does a great job of laying out, when people choose a worldview, they typically need that worldview to do six things. And this is kind of following philosophers' ideas. And I think there's some wisdom to this. So they need to provide... They need to provide, um, let me consult my notes here so I don't get it wrong. They need to provide hope. They need to provide identity. They need to provide meaning, morality, satisfaction, and freedom. Think about what we just said, Jesus said in his I am statements. I'm the resurrection and the life. There's hope beyond death. Right? Think about what we said about Jesus saying, I'm the true vine. I can give you a life of meaning, Or how about I am the light of the world, I can teach you what is good and right and moral. How about I am the bread of life, I can satisfy you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I can can make a home for you where you'll experience true freedom. And like John, I can let you know that you are a child of God, loved by him. Just think about what we learned about Jesus and how he answers everyone. What more could you want? than this kind of a savior, than this kind of a God. So it's fitting that we've talked about the bread of life. Servers, I'll invite you to come. We're gonna come to the communion table now. And as we hold these elements in our hand, we hold a reminder of the body and the blood of Jesus sacrificed for us so that we might have eternal life. Now, if you're not a believer, again, man, I invite you into this conversation. In fact, church family, I invite you to consider Who are your friends that you would invite to come join us in this conversation in the weeks and months ahead? I promise to treat your friends with dignity. All right, you can trust me. Let them come and have this conversation with us or at least least invite them in. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, here's what we're doing. We're coming to the table of the Lord and those of us who have placed our faith in him are gonna partake of these elements as a way of declaring our faith. So we're declaring our trust and our submission to him. We give our lives to you, King Jesus. So we're gonna declare those things. We'll invite you to let the elements pass because you haven't declared those things or chosen those things. And we wouldn't want you to cause, wouldn't cause you to say with your actions something you have not believed in your mind and heart. And so we'll invite you to let those elements pass and to use this moment as a time to consider all the things that you've heard about Jesus today. And just to know that his table is open to all who would place their faith in him, whether that would be in this moment or in years prior. If you would say, I want you, Jesus. I wanna come to you. This table now is for you. So church family, as we hold the elements in our hand, we'll consider who Jesus has claimed himself to be today and how our lives need to align with that and perhaps the sin present in our lives that we don't treat lightly, but want to repent of, confess to him, and move away from. So we come to the table now. Servers, if you'd come.